the man, and uh, he was just out uh, in the streets running a few errands for his wife. But suddenly uh, he started feeling delirious, and he simply could not remember his home address. He couldn't remember where he lived. Uh, I don't know if you can put yourself in this man's shoes, but uh, he tells me that it was a terrifying experience. It's actually terrifying not being able to find your way home. Uh, now, we've been working our way through the Psalms, uh, as, as Will has, has uh, said already, and uh, we're going to have a look at Psalm 51 together this morning. Uh, this is a, another psalm written by King David, who you know is uh, one of Israel's greatest kings. And uh, I want to suggest uh, from the outset that uh, David writes this psalm in order to teach you and me the way back home. Uh, he wants to teach you and me the way back home to God. Uh, you can see it there in verse 13. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to uh, chapter 51, verse 13, uh, and uh, listen to what David writes. He, he says there, Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Now, that's why he's writing. He wants to teach us how to return to God, how to find our way back home. And uh, I wonder, friends, whether you've ever had uh, times when you've wandered away from God in your life, and, and you, you, you wonder, how on earth am I going to get back to him? Uh, have you had times like that in your life? Uh, perhaps uh, you're here this morning and you know that you are living in sin or caught up in some kind of sin in your life. You know, you're keeping it a secret, but you know that you've messed up before God. And you're wondering to yourself, how on earth am I going to get back home to God? Uh, or perhaps you're here this morning and, you know, there, there's no spectacular sin in your life, but you've just been cold and apathetic towards God for a long time. And you think to yourself, well, how on earth am I ever going to get back to God and to the way things were? Uh, or perhaps you've simply walked away from God in your life. Uh, you've turned your back on him. Uh, you no longer call yourself a Christian. But you've been thinking to yourself how you can get back to him. Now, uh, I want to say that David is pretty well qualified to speak on this issue because uh, if you have a look at uh, uh, this psalm, uh, he writes these words after a monumental stuff-up before God, uh, to put it lightly. Uh, you can see it there in the heading to the psalm. Uh, David writes these words after the Bathsheba incident, doesn't he? Um, you might know the story. Uh, you can read it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But uh, it happens one balmy Sunday afternoon. Sorry, I don't know whether it's a, it was a Sunday, but uh, one balmy spring afternoon, uh, I was going to say. Uh, David is on the roof of his palace uh, when he sees this beautiful woman called Bathsheba uh, off in the distance, uh, naked and having a bath. Uh, in his lust, he summons this lady to his palace, and even though he knows that she is a married man, a uh, married woman, sorry, uh, married to a, a man called Uriah, well, 
he sleeps with her, he takes advantage of her. He thinks, of course, that this is just a one-night stand and he'll never see her again until one day she turns up at his doorstep with the bombshell news, I am pregnant with your baby. Uh, What does David do? Well, uh, in his desperation, uh, he tries to cover up his sin. Uh, He invites Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, to the palace and tells him to go and sleep with his wife. Perhaps if she sleeps with Bathsheba, then no one will ever have to know that this is actually his baby. And when that doesn't work, well, he gets more and more desperate. He tries to um, uh, get Uriah drunk so that he will go and sleep with, with his wife. And even when that doesn't work, he does the unthinkable by engineering the murder of Uriah. Uh, he tells the army general to just leave Uriah out there in the, in the battlefield, uh, to abandon him there so that he will be killed in battle. Uh, what is the way back home for a person like David, I wonder? What is the way back home for David, who once loved God and is even described as a man after God's very own heart, to return home to God? Uh, Well, the first thing you can see in this passage is that uh, David begins by pleading for mercy, doesn't he? Uh, Pleading for mercy. Uh, You can see it there in verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see, David cries out to God and asks him to give him something that he does not deserve. For that is what mercy is, isn't it? You know, David knows that he deserves nothing but judgment and punishment from God, and yet he pleads with God to please give him something that he doesn't deserve. Further, did you notice that David appeals to God's character in this psalm? You see, David knows that he can't plead before God based on his own character, which has so spectacularly let him down. And so he appeals to what he knows about God's character, what he is like. He is a God of steadfast love. He is a God of abundant mercy. This is the character of God that he revealed to uh, the people of Israel, his covenant people that he is a merciful and gracious and forgiving God, full of steadfast and faithful love towards his people who have embraced uh, the covenant uh, from the heart. But how does David want God to show him mercy? Well, you can see there that David pleads with God to cleanse him from his sin. You can see it there in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, cries David. You can see it again further down in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than the snow. Uh, When I worked as a tax consultant uh, in my prior life, um, I had an important business meeting with the boss of the, of the big firm that I was working for. 
And so uh, that morning, uh, I remember putting on a crisp white shirt and uh, a tie and, and suit. And I headed off to work, slightly nervous about me- meeting the head honcho. Uh, what I didn't know was that I had, in the morning, placed a, a black ink pen in my pocket without the lid on. And so uh, when I got to work and I took off my jacket, uh, half this side of my shirt was just black (laughs) from the ink stain. And you see, I knew that I, I couldn't go and meet my boss looking like this, you see. See, David is saying something similar, isn't he? David knows that he just cannot come home to God, the holy, righteous pristine God stained with his sin. And so he pleads with God to somehow blot out his sin and to wash him and and cleanse him from this awful stain that he has in his soul. In other words, he knows that his only hope with God is for these stains to be removed, for God somehow to see him as someone who has never sinned so that he can become acceptable to God. Now, friends, what is it that makes David cry out to God in this way? What is it that makes him so desperate? Well, it's because David is deeply convicted about his sin, isn't it? He understands just how serious his sin is before God. And you can see there that David is aware of a number of things about his sin um, in the confession that you see there that he makes before God. Uh, Firstly, uh, I want you to notice that he is deeply aware of his guilt. Uh, In verse 3, David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. You know, when he gets up in the morning... He's troubled by what he has done. As he works through the day, it just keeps on occupying his mind. When he puts his head down on the pillow at night, the guilt of his sin still haunts him. It is ever before me, he says. But secondly, he is aware also of the danger that this sin has put him in. Uh, And it's dangerous because sin, as we've heard in the kids' talk, is offensive to God himself. Now, you can see it there in verse 4, can't you, where he says, Against you, against you, God, only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I mean, this is an astonishing thing for David to say, isn't it? Under the circumstances. For notice that David doesn't even mention what he has done against Bathsheba, and against Uriah here. But it's not because, any, because, it's not because those sins were not serious. No, David knew exactly how serious they were. Adultery and murder were punishable by death in the law. But the point that David is making here is that even greater than that is the fact that you have sinned against God and against what he has said. This is the very definition of sin, isn't it? It is not necessarily only about the things you have done, but it is the fact that 
in our sin, we give offence to God and what he has said in his word. What kind of danger does sin place you in? Well, in verse 4, David knows that God has every right to judge and condemn and punish him, as we've seen. In verse 11, David knows that he's in danger of uh, being cast away from God and his goodness. In verse 14, he knows that he deserves death for the evil that he has done in God's sight. It is a serious thing. But thirdly, notice that David is also deeply aware of the depth of his sin. Now you can see it there in verse 5, can't you? He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, it's not as though David is a good man who uncharacteristically made a, made a mistake by sleeping with Bathsheba or murdering her husband one day. No, David begins to see that his problem actually runs much, much deeper than what he ever imagined. For from the very day that he was born, he was born a sinner. His very nature was to sin and rebel against God. This is who he is. In other words, friends, it's not that David has become a sinner because he has committed these acts. It's the fact that he is, by his very nature, to the core, a rebel against God, that he has done these acts. Do you see the difference? It's a bit like picking diseased apples from a tree. It's not that the tree becomes diseased because there are a few diseased fruits hanging off its branches. Now, you actually have a much bigger problem. It's because the tree itself is diseased that it bears diseased fruit. Now, uh, friends, if you are a parent like I am, um, I think this is why God reminds us in the Scriptures that we are to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's because children are not innocent people before God, as we sometimes think, who, if, we, if just left to themselves, they'll kind of develop into godly and righteous people. It's because, just like us, they are sinful from birth and need the instruction and correction and rebuke and teaching of the gospel in order that they might live as God's people. They need the same thing that you and I need. And if you and I are parents, then it is our responsibility to give it to them. Now, I know that that's very hard to believe when you look into the eyes of that chubby baby that's you know, grinning at you from year to year. And uh, the Bible certainly is not saying that uh, every person born is as evil as they possibly can be. But as every parent here knows to some extent, children lie. Uh, do your children lie? Mine do. Children steal. Children are selfish. Even before anyone has ever taught that to them. 
You see, there is something deeply wrong inside each one of us from birth that makes us rebel against God. The problem is deep. But friends, uh, here's the point. Uh, David would not have been convicted of his sins and he would not have cried out to God for mercy if it were not for God's word. You see, after David murders Uriah, well, he might have thought that he got away with it, you know? Perhaps he was even trying to justify in his heart that what he did was not that bad, you know? You know that fling with Bathsheba? Well, that wasn't harmful to anyone, was it? It was just a bit of harmless fun. Or, you know, my father was an impulsive man, so I, I've inherited this from him, and that's why I murdered Uriah. Or, you know, even that, that's not that bad, is it? You know, people die in battle all the time, and so you can't really hold me responsible for what happened there. You see, friends, it's astonishing how good we are at telling lies to ourselves in order to cover up our sin. We're like onions. We just have layers and layers of lies and deception. Now, what lies do you tell yourself about your own sin? Not my fault. It's my circumstances. It's the people around me. But it's never my fault, is it? But friends, it's only when David is confronted by God's word through the prophet Nathan that he begins to see his own sin. You see, the word of God is a bit like a mirror that reveals to us what we are really like. And it is through this word from Nathan that David begins to see the reality of sin in his life. And so rather than continue to lie to himself, well, he is exposed and he comes clean before God. He takes responsibility. It's now no longer other people made me do it. It's now I know my transgressions. I have sinned. I have done evil in your eyes. Now, friends, is this your experience of, of God's word? Now, I don't know what sin you have in your life. Um, I know what sin I have in my life. Uh, it may be sexual sins of some kind. It could be greed. It could be just a cold apathy towards God. It could even be murder in a room of this size with this many people. But has God's word revealed to you the seriousness of your sin? And just how offensive it is to God, such that you cry out for mercy to him. For if God's word does this, and God's word might be working in this way, even as I speak, in your hearts, as we see the ugliness of our sin, well, it might be bad news to us, but it's actually good news for the cry of mercy that comes from seeing that ugliness and that need is actually a cry for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is at the cross that justice is done. You know, God is not a God who just simply sweeps 
our sins under the carpet and says, forget about it. No, God is a God of justice, and he must do justice. Our sins have to be paid for. And for those who are united with Jesus, those sins are paid for at the cross. Justice is done. But those who know Jesus are also the ones who know that it is at the cross that mercy flows like a river to those who ask for mercy. And the stain of sin is removed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who washes them away. Well, friends, uh, we've seen uh, God's word convicting David of his sins such that he cries out to God for mercy and forgiveness. Uh, But what we see next is that returning home to God requires you and me to turn away from sin and begin living God's way. In other words, we cannot expect to go home to God if we're not prepared to change our direction and to leave our sins behind and start listening to God so that we're walking towards him, you see. Coming home to God means actually turning away from the way we have been living and making decisions to walk his way. Now, you can see this in David's desire uh, through what he asks for here in this prayer. And uh, if you have a look at verse 10, you can see that he asks God to give him a new heart. Uh, In verse 10, David prays, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see, David knows that he cannot come back home to God unless he turns away from his sins and begins living a new life. And so he asks God to give him a heart transplant. He asks God desperately to give him a new heart and a clean heart that is no longer filled with deception and lies, but now lives God's way, willingly and joyfully. And further, David knows that such a willingness to obey God is not something that he can do through his own ability. And so he desperately prays to God that he would not take his Holy Spirit away from him. For he knows that such a new heart, such a clean heart, such a willingness to do God's will and God's word can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. What does obeying God willingly from the heart look like? Well, I think this is where I was very surprised by this passage. You know, what do you think of when you, when you think about obedience to God, you know, willingly doing his will? Well, it's interesting that here... David says that the person who obeys God from the heart will be the ones who speak about God with their lips. I wonder whether you noticed that. And so in verses 12 to 15, David speaks about how he will live in the light of God's mercy and forgiveness. And in each case, do you see that he speaks about what he will do with his lips? 
In verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. The teaching of God will be on his lips. In verse 14, he says, My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. In verse 15, he says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You see, friends, if my heart is captured by the wonder of God's mercy to me, to a miserable sinner like me, then I will begin to speak to other sinners about how wonderful God is and how merciful he really is so that they also can return to him. If my heart really has been changed by God, then I cannot help but praise God through song and praise God and speak well of him to people around me, whether that's at church or in my workplace or my friends or people I know. I want people to know how merciful and how gracious and how compassionate my God really is. We all speak about things that capture our hearts, don't we? There is something profoundly natural about the one who praises God before others because their hearts have been changed. There is prof something profoundly wrong and disturbing about the person who claims that he has been changed and yet is tight-lipped about the things of God. Why is this important? Well, it's because God is not fooled by the person who simply does the religious rituals without really turning back to him. Now, let's pick it up from verse 16. Look at what David says in verse 16. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will never despise. You see, friends, you and I can go through the religious rituals, just like the people of Israel who went to the temple, brought their animals uh, for sacrifice, and ticked all the right religious boxes. You can be baptised, you can be a regular churchgoer, you can be surrounded by other Christians. But God says that those who do these things without wholeheartedly turning back to him, crying out for mercy, desiring to obey his word from the heart, will just be wasting their time. God is not pleased. He's not impressed with empty religion. And there is no way back for such a person. But the person whom God will always accept back home is the one who is broken in spirit. We saw a person like this in our New Testament reading, didn't we? The tax collector. The one who recognises his sin. It is the one who has a broken and contrite heart. It is the one who realises just how sinful and rebellious he or she has been, how much offence he, has, he or she has given to God such that all he can do is humbly come before God begging for mercy 
and desperate to live the new life that God wants. And God says, that person, that person I will never despise. Uh, On our recent holiday, uh, my family stayed at a farm where they trained horses. I don't know how we got there, but we stayed on a farm that trained horses. They had all these obstacles for horses. They had these horse tracks. It was amazing. But um, I do know that this is a place that trained horses so that they would be broken in. Uh, We speak about breaking in horses, don't we? It's when the trainer uh, trains this horse so that the horse doesn't you know, do what he wants to do, but gradually learns to do what the trainer or his master wants him to do. And friends, I want to ask this morning, have you been broken in this way? Have you been broken and humbled by God's mercy shown to you through the gospel. For that is the way home. And I don't know what sin you have in your life at the moment. Only you know that, and God certainly knows that. But I hope that you can see the welcoming arms of God in this passage for anyone who comes clean and anyone who desires truly genuinely to turn back to him and to make changes so that we're walking in obedience to him. Uh, Now, friends, uh, I can gladly finish my sermon there, and you're probably thinking to yourself, I hope you do, but uh, I know that there's there's another little bit at the end of this passage. Uh, I don't know whether you, you notice, but... There is this slightly awkward bit at the end of Psalm 51 that doesn't quite seem to fit. Uh, Did you notice that? I mean, most of this psalm has been a prayer for mercy uh, cried out by an individual, hasn't it? However, if you come down to verse 18, you will see that David suddenly prays not only for himself but for the city of Jerusalem. Uh, He says in verse 18, Do good to Zion, which is Jerusalem, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, David doesn't just pray for mercy for himself, but he prays for mercy for the people who live in his city, in the city of God. Why would David pray this prayer? do you think? Well, I reckon it's because in the Psalms, David is not just any old individual, is he? For David is God's king. He is God's anointed. He is the Messiah of God's people. And so I think it is quite fitting that a good king would pray not only for his good, but for the good of his kingdom and his people which is what David does here. Further, if you've been following our series on the Psalms, then you will know that the book of Psalms is really a search for a righteous king who will bring blessing to his people. 
even as he destroys the enemies of God. And this is the king that we met, if you remember, in Psalm 2, the righteous king that wants blessing for those who take refuge in him, the righteous king who will destroy his enemies. And uh, you may be aware that the first two books of the Psalms, which uh, stretches all the way from chapter 3, uh, after the introduction of chapters 1 and 2, uh, all the way to chapter 72, are Psalms that reflect, on the whole, on the life of David. In fact, uh, if you turn with me, uh, just turn with me quickly to uh, chapter 72, and uh, come right to the end of chapter 72. Uh, this is the end of book 2. And uh, you'll notice there in verse 20 of chapter 72 that it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. You see, what the compiler of the Psalms wants us to see is that everything before this point, have been about the life of David. They have been pr the prayers of David because the first two books of the, uh, the Psalms are actually encouraging us and the people of Israel to reflect on the life of this king. Could he be the Messiah that we met in chapter, in chapter 2, the righteous king that was promised? However, I hope you can see from Psalm 51, and uh, perhaps in your reading of the other Psalms, that although David was a good king in many ways, well, he was not the righteous king that the people of Israel hoped for. In fact, as we've seen, he was just another miserable sinner like us who fell spectacularly to sin and who is in need of God's mercy and transformation through his spirit. But you see, King David was just a shadow of the righteous king that was to come. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I have that righteous king, the one who died on the cross for us, so that all our unrighteousness could be taken uh, by him, and our guilt and our sin dealt with him on, uh, on the cross, and so that he can give us his righteousness, so that he can wash us clean by his blood, so that the stain of sin can be removed from us. And here is also a king who rose powerfully from the dead and now sends his spirit into our lives to give us a new heart that willingly and joyfully obeys God. And do you know this king, friends? For he is, the way to he is the way home to God, you know. And so why don't you turn to him? Beg him for mercy. Beg him to wash you clean with his blood and ask him for a new heart that obeys God willingly and joyfully as we find our way back home to God. Well, friends, um, I'm not going to pray now because I think uh, it's appropriate after we re read a psalm like this to 
spend some time confessing uh, our sins to God uh, in prayer. Um, and so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to sing a song, I think. Um, and then after we sing this song, um, uh, we're going to pray a prayer of confession. And while we sing this song, it'll be good if we can um, just reflect on this psalm and think about the sin in our lives so that we can confess those things to God and ask him for his mercy.